Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath it. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what are we doing this time round? Well, I'm going to start with a question this time round. What do Dublin, Kiev, and Nagasaki have in common? Yes, I guess they're all three of them are cities, but there's something else about their history that connects them don't know? Well, the title of this particular episode is Hollywood. Hollywood. And clearly somewhere like Nagasaki has nothing to do with Hollywood or Kiev or Dublin for that matter. But what they all have in common is that they were founded by foreigners, by people overseas. Now, To be honest, if we're looking at America, particularly the United States of America, all the major cities were founded by settlers after 1492. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, etc. So it's not much of a surprise there. But I'll come on to the history of those other cities in a little bit. But first things first, I find Hollywood being a really interesting conversation. And let's face it, doesn't get much more popular culture than the world of movies. Now, I did ages ago some stuff about the history of Hollywood, so I'm not going to go too much into the details of that, but to cut a long story short, California is very sunny, and also California's near the coast, near desert, near mountains, near forests, so in the very early film industry, it was the perfect location to shoot lots of bright images onto the films. You go out. Go out where? To Hollywood. Now, when it came to the actual interiors, to save money, quite often they were filmed in the outdoors. But again, California doesn't rain all the time. Almost always sunny. So that was easy to do. Those very rudimentary, hand-cranked cameras in the early 1900s, they needed as much light as you could get. So you're either going to spend a fortune on electricity with interior lighting, or just use what Mother Nature is already supplying in abundance. And that's why California started being used more heavily than other parts of America. Then you get World War I and the very buoyant British, German, French film industries, all of which had overseas territories that they could pass their 
films onto. And obviously the great thing about silent movies is all you had to do was change the writing plate to whatever language you want it to go out to. And that was great. Until you have a massive war, millions die, the film industry kind of shuts down. But it didn't really affect American production. And so what's interesting is Hollywood was basically created by, yes, immigrants, pioneers, call them whatever you want. But you also get studios like United Artists pushing back from the early fledgling studio system. You get the likes of Errol Flynn and Charlie Chaplin creating their own studio to be better, fairer to the people who are good at what they do, the talent, the actors and actresses, etc. So Hollywood, and, and this is what I find interesting, is that people talk about the Academy Awards, people talk about Hollywood, you even get the Hollywood sign. Staring up at the Hollywood sign. Very famous, but that in itself is a bit of a a fake. It isn't quite what you think it actually is. It was set up by a real estate company selling plots of land, and it originally said Hollywood Land on it. That was erected in 1923, and it was meant to be a temporary advertisement. But people liked it. The land bit eventually fell down, and and so it just stayed up. However, because it was a temporary thing, it was looking very tatty by the 1970s, and indeed there was a a whole campaign to sort of renovate it, it had become a landmark. And in the 1970s, it was actually replaced with a more durable, I believe it's stainless steel structure saying the same thing. So there we go. There's a sort of like a, a bit of fake history, if you like to do with that, or the history isn't quite what you think it might be. And the other thing about Hollywood is, look, there was no doubt in the 1910s it was already beginning to outstrip everywhere else. And really, for English language cinema, its glory days lasted about 50 years, from the 1910s to the 1960s. Now, I was careful how I phrased myself there, because, again, in my episode about RRR... I point out that India regularly cranks out far more movies than America does. And so by the 1960s, already India's outstripping production of America. Very different films, very different marketplace. Anyway, I'll put that to one side. But even in Hollywood, the grip was beginning to slip. Because by the 1960s, there were other cool things that you could do, other places that you could go. Not everybody wanted to live on the west coast of America. Yes, it has a great climate, but it also has earthquakes and quite a lot of crime as well. And house prices are ridiculously high. And, and generally, there's a lot of reasons why you might not want to live in Los Angeles. For example, I always thought when I went to L.A. for the first time, the center of a city tends to be the place where you've got things like the clubs, the pubs, the entertainment, the, the movie theatres. And, you know, if it's older in Europe, it's likely to have a cathedral in there or something like that. The centre of a city tends to be its beating heart. But LA's almost not a city. Hollywood is a suburb. It's a part of Los Angeles. And really, Los Angeles grew with the, with the car, the automobile. 
And so every, every area is connected by freeways, motorways. And really, the middle of LA is the only city I know of where that's the no-go zone. That's the, the place with rampant crime. South Central LA is the sort of thing that rappers in the 1980s would rap about and not in a positive real estate kind of way. My name is Elaine, and I'll be your tour guide through South Central Los Angeles. Yeah, it's a weird place, Los Angeles. And Hollywood is definitely very wealthy. I have heard the reason why, if you were to go to a place like San Francisco or LA, there is a horrible amount of homelessness there. Now, every country has its share of homelessness, every country has its share of drug addiction, and it's not surprising that America has its share too. There are great divides. There are some of the wealthiest people on planet Earth in America, and not some of the poorest people on planet Earth, but some people who clearly the American dream never happened for them. But, to be fair to the likes of LA and San Francisco, is they have a disproportionate amount of homeless because if you are homeless in somewhere like Milwaukee, then in the wintertime you're probably going to die. So actually there are these people that migrate basically across the American continent to the West Coast because the weather is better for them if they're sleeping in a doorway or under a bridge or something like that. Terrible. That's, you know, it's just bad anyway, but it compounds the situation. So you've got these Hollywood stars worth sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars driving past people who are begging for loose change. It's horrible and awful and a sign that Hollywood is just a facade. We know you don't have any more money left, but that doesn't matter. Just take whatever you need from our boutiques until you can get back on your feet. Thank God we're back in Hollywood, where people treat each other right. There's the famous Chinese theater, where particularly in the 60s and 70s, there were lots of big Hollywood opening nights, you know, the red carpets out. That road, I drove down, and very quickly, it gets pretty... CD says Jem politely. In fact, I do remember pulling into one place and going into a mall. No, I was going to going to go to a, a see a movie, and I was in the bathroom area. I, I went to the, the the bathroom, and I'm standing there washing my hands. And two police officers come in, and they've got words written on their bulletproof vests and stab vest, flat vest, whatever they're called. And of course they're in the mirror and it said Nagtinu. And I looked at it and went Nagtinu and then played it backwards in my head. Gang unit. Well if you have actual if that needs to be printed on your clothing, then that shows you how ingrained gang warfare, the gang problems of Los Angeles actually are. So, yes, there are socioeconomic issues with Hollywood, and there's socioeconomic issues with all countries and cities around the world. It says Jim, trying not to lose his listenership because, of course, socioeconomic issues and policies is, is red hot stuff for podcasts. It's serious. I'm, I'm not trying to be flippant there. I think I was perhaps unnecessarily. I apologize. But 
Hollywood, if you like, is a great symbol of it. Why did it go on the wane? It wasn't down to India and its movie production because it's so separate. But instead, you start getting the rise of the independent filmmaker. This group of enfants terribles, like Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, and to a certain extent, Steven Spielberg as well. I, I love the fact that Steven Spielberg cut his teeth on directing episodes of Columbo. Oh, Mr. Janice, just one more thing, please. Got to start somewhere. But I'm going to say, arguably, those are some of the greatest directed episodes of Columbo ever. But here's the thing. When you get other movies as well, I mean, I mentioned some of the famous directors there, but you get famous movies like Easy Rider. These were low budget. They were filmed almost with guerrilla filmmaking. What do I mean by that? It means you weren't filming it on location in a set and you had the whole studio going ooh and ah over it. Low budget, film it on the move, not necessarily always with permission. And it absolutely hits the counterculture of America. It fits in with the whole push against Vietnam, civil rights, etc. And Hollywood just looked as stilted and as uniform as the government that the young people were pushing against. Weirdly, the person who broke the studio system, what happened up until the 1960s, is if you're a young star or young actor or actress, the studio would put a lot of time and effort into you. They would make sure that you were made up a certain way. They would pay for singing lessons, dance lessons, whatever it needs. They would give you a wardrobe and they would sort of PR you and you're this type of person. This is the type of person you're going to play. And because they put all that money into you, you're going to do the movies we tell you to do. I want to do a, a Western. Sorry, you're doing a war movie because that's what we're telling you to do. It wasn't particularly great, but, you know, lots of classic Hollywood movies came out. And what happened was the person of all people that would break it was Sean Connery. World domination. Same old dream. Our asylums are full of people who think they're Napoleon or God. Why? Because, let's face it, Sean Connery is best known for James Bond. But that was the thing. He had done his required amount of James Bond movies, and then George Lazenby walked in. And nobody liked George Lazenby. So suddenly they had an actor who was out of contract, who really didn't want to do it anymore, being begged to come back to do one last James Bond. Diamonds are forever, for the record. And so he did it for a lot of money, at which point there were other stars who were beginning to say, hang on, Sean Connery, really, people only go to see Sean Connery movies when they're a Bond film. He's not exactly a household name. Don't believe me. Google images of Zardoz, where you're going to see Sean Connery wearing what can only be described as a red nappy, red diaper for Americans, and a very long ponytail. My name is Zed. For Zandos, I am an exterminator. It's a look. It's a thing. He's also wearing thigh-high boots as well. It's, yeah, I don't know who thought that's going to get people into the, into the movieplexes and cinemas and all this kind of stuff. Really not a good look. So, yeah, we're starting to get different types of movie. We're starting to get different types of viewers as well. And we're also starting to get a different system in Hollywood. All of this is changing. Suddenly, you do not need to be in Hollywood to make these movies. And 
the thing that really tilts everything is 1977's Star Wars, directed by George Lucas. You all know the story. But there is, if you are, if you have Disney Plus, there is an excellent documentary series called Light and Magic, and it's the story of ILM, Industrial Light and Magic. Now, I knew that George Lucas was involved with its setup. I didn't realize it was set up because George Lucas wanted to make Star Wars and realized nobody can make this. So I better set up a special effects company that can put my ideas onto the screen. And I won't say anything more than that. It is an amazing behind the scenes look of this company. But also, well, yes, it's well known to be at its peak in the 70s and 80s and doing things for Spielberg and George Lucas, etc. It shows you how it evolved and really how industrial light and magic has defined modern cinema. For better or for worse, we would be in a very different place if it hadn't been for George Lucas's vision. And I, if you have an opportunity to watch that series, watch it. It is amazing. If you have even the passing interest in cinema history, that's the one for you. But here's the thing. George Lucas set it up himself and he made Star Wars on his own. And so he's basically the most successful independent filmmaker of all times. It says, I mean, it used to say, now it says Disney, but it used to say Lucasfilm at the front, which is not the same thing as MGM or Universal or Paramount or Sony Pictures or whatever. Yeah, he he creates his own stuff. And on Skywalker Ranch, yes, why he called it that, he does his own filming, he does his own production. And, and so this isn't in Hollywood. Yes, it's in California for the record. But we're starting to see the splintering. Hollywood doesn't hold as much power as it did a decade earlier. People are going off and doing their own thing. Also, it used to be incredibly expensive to film in New York, which is perhaps a, an even more famous city than Los Angeles. But weirdly, it was in the 1970s where the mayor changed the laws to encourage. New York was going through a terrible time in the 1970s, and he wanted to encourage business, so why not get some movies filmed here? So the irony is, when New York was at its absolute worst, and most derelict, most poverty and crime-ridden, you get some amazing movies. Let's face it, Taxi Driver wouldn't have worked, if it had been a lovely place to live. You're talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. But suddenly you're getting East Coast, West Coast, a bit like with the, the rapper battles in the late 80s, early 90s, but with movies as well in the 70s and 80s. So New York is suddenly tilting the entire continent going the opposite direction. Then let's fast forward to. 1999, and we've got Peter Jackson in New Zealand, about as far as you can get from, well, anywhere. But he's suddenly, he's been around for years. He's made low budget movies, some silly movies as well, Meet the Feebles and Bad Taste, etc. Brain Dead. But now he's making the, he's making an attempt at doing the Lord of the Rings trilogy in three back to back filming sessions. 
all in New Zealand, and he's even got his own small little, a bit like George Lucas, he's created his own little special effects studio, which have been around for a while, including with The Frighteners, a really underrated Peter Jackson movie. It's the last film he made before he did all of the Lord of the Rings movies. And it stars Michael J. Fox, and it's sort of a forgotten great with Michael J. Fox in it. Really good film, really recommend it. We have got a poltergeist! Okay, well, folks, I can do a clearance, but uh, it's not going to be cheap. And there's even sort of Black Riders in it, and that Nazgul, there's certainly an element to that. Maybe he was testing some of the potential with them. Who knows? That's conjecture. But Weta Workshops, which created amazing special effects for the Lord of the Rings movies, not Industrial Light and Magic. And now we're on several continents away from Hollywood. And today, Hollywood is still being used as a phrase, but really what they mean is... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. American filmmaking. And when we're getting things, be it The Mandalorian on TV, or, I don't know, the latest Thor movie, or Maverick Top Gun, Maverick, Mavericky Maverick. Here we go. All these sorts of things are referred to as Hollywood movies, whether they're actually even filmed in California or not. Really interesting that this is, it's a bit like how outside of India we tend to refer to Bollywood, even if it might be Tollywood or Chahollywood or Jollywood. It's a phrase that's stuck that actually means less the further forwards we go. So, this is the facade. Let's talk about some historical facades that were set up and then evolved into their own thing. Let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. Chattel Hoyuk. I have mentioned Gobekli Tepe. Both of these are in Turkey. Gobekli Tepe is the oldest structures that humans have ever erected. They're about 12,000 years old but it's clearly some kind of temple complex. 
Nobody wrote anything down. We got no other information about it. But it's clearly not a place that was inhabited long term. It was clearly a place people turned up to and did some kind of ceremonies in. So that's 12,000 years ago. 8,000 years ago, we get Chattelhoyuk, which is the oldest village, hamlet, call it like what you will, long-term permanent settlement in the world. Both of these are in eastern modern-day Turkey. Obviously, the Turks had not arrived and weren't going to arrive for thousands of years. So these people were completely unknown to us culturally, linguistically, or anything like that. And we've got little houses, a settlement, a little town where people clearly lived and died and grew their crops and so on and so forth. That is a long time ago. And throughout most of the world, once we had invented agriculture, there wasn't a reason to follow the herds around through the wet season and cold seasons, etc. And so we get a sprinkling of towns. And some of these towns were in particularly good locations and they grew into can only be described as cities. You get the idea. So different cities appeared on planet Earth at very different times, and some of them grew, some of them disappeared due to famine, earthquake, war. But sometimes they get set up for slightly unusual reasons. And going back to what have Dublin, Kiev, and Nagasaki got in common, the answer is they were all founded by peoples that weren't from the local area. And like I said, that's obvious for America, but Here's some more interesting stuff. So, the thing about Dublin is it was founded by the Vikings, which is not a group that you tend to associate with building, but actually they spent far more time trading, and for the record, Viking means wanderer. Scandinavians were always Scandinavians, but when they went out to do pillaging, then they were Vikings. But I'm using the term Viking because you know what I mean. They've clearly come from somewhere like Denmark or Norway. We're talking about pagan superstitions. We're talking about longboats and so on and so forth. And yeah, they did take over Ireland and the British Isles as well. So, and bits of northern France. You get the idea. But... The other thing that the Vikings, in inverted commas, were very good at was trading. And so in Britain, we have York, which comes from the Viking word Jorvik. And I love the fact that the very last king. So briefly, in the 920s, England actually became England. It was actually a fully formed kingdom, very similar borders to what England has today. And that was under the King Athelstan. And therefore, there's this assumption of, oh, you know, now we've got a country. It's always like that. But no, once he died, things sort of broke up again. And it took maybe two generations to reform England. And I love the fact that the very last king or ruler, if you like, of Jorvik or York was Eric Bloodaxe. Now, there's a name that would look good on the ballot paper. Eh? That, that, you're going to remember that name. Vote Eric Bloodaxe. Now, he was a pagan. I think you can probably work out he was Scandinavian. And it's interesting that the people of York were so desperate to be independent of the crown in the south of the country that they'd rather go, a bunch of Christians would rather go for a pagan with that surname, or nickname at least, rather than a King Edmund or Eadred or something like that. It's... <laughs> It tickles me that that would, was the better option. Of course, if your name is Eric Bloodaxe, you were brutally murdered at some point on the Yorkshire Moors. Unsurprising, that's what happened to him. So that's Jorvik. 
Dublin. In Dublin's fair city, where the girls are so pretty, was also founded by the Vikings and was a trading post. Dublin was the first major large town in Irish history. Other communities and settlements existed. Make no mistake about it, but. This was the one that actually stuck, and this was the one that just grew and grew. And today, Dublin is the capital city of the Republic of Ireland, and it is the largest settlement city in all of the Republic of Ireland. So, well done, Vikings! There. But here's the thing: Dublin is actually a mangling of the Old Norse. It means, if you translate it, Blackpool. And there is a Blackpool in England as well. Now they weren't actually connected. It's because, like a lot of these things, they actually had a decent port. It's on the coast. The, the long ships can come in. They can actually trade. They can bring goods in, take goods out, etc. And what's interesting is that the local Irish did finally uprise and get rid of what had now become the Nordic ruling class of their island. The Irish are very fiercely independent. Trust me on that one. If you don't know any more about that, and their relationship with Britain, for example, I'm not going there. So what's interesting is the Vikings then left, and they had multiple places they could go. They could go back to Scandinavia. They could go to Northern England, or indeed Scotland. There were big Viking communities there, but actually a large amount of them went west. And ended up in this place called Iceland. And so what's interesting is that if you look at the Icelandic population, all roughly three hundred and fifty thousand of them. Yes, they've all clearly got Scandinavian DNA, but they've pretty much all got Irish DNA as well, proving their direct route from from Ireland, but also showing how the Scandinavians did actually interbreed with local Irish people back in the day. So Dublin is just this epicenter of trade. And later on, administration of Ireland, and indeed, yes, the Irish took it back. Then the English came in, and Dublin always was the most important place. It is strange to say, but in the nineteenth century, before Irish independence, Britain poured lots of time, energy, and money into Dublin. There are a lot of very Victorian-looking buildings in Dublin because. That's what the Victorians wanted to do, and they saw it as an integral part of their empire, of their colonies, etc. And it has this very British flavour, as opposed to anything distinctly Celtic. Although, of course, Gaelic is being used more and more in Ireland, and you've now got more places and indeed road signs with the Gaelic language on them. So that's Dublin. Let's move to Kiev. Used to be called Kiev. And surprise, surprise, we're back to the Vikings again. Now, I did talk more about this in my episode I did on Ukraine, which I brought out early on, virtually at the start of the Ukraine-Russian war. So, if you want to know more, go back to that episode and have a listen. It's great. Jim said modestly, "It's fine. It's okay, I suppose." So, the point here is that once again, everything I've just said about Dublin, it's the same in the region of Ukraine. 
It's the same with Kiev. What you've got is like, well, hang on. Kiev is a long way from the coast, and you're right, but it is also on the major river of the Dnieper. And to this day, in the Ukrainian war, it's an incredibly important major riverway that pretty much goes north-south across the whole of modern-day Ukraine. And it was therefore the perfect place to set up a trading post. Now, from the point of view of the Vikings, their longships are just one of the most amazingly designed things in pre-industrial history. We're talking about a ship that had a shallow enough hull that it could go up and down the major riverways of Europe, places like the Rhine or the Dnieper or the Thames even, and yet also it was sturdy and hardy enough that it could travel across the North Atlantic. It's an amazing piece of engineering. So well done, the Vikings, there. And therefore, just following the river down to a place where there seemed to be good connections with the local population of Rus, which is where we get Russian from. And it's round about 900 AD that we start getting the princes of Kiev, where the original, as I said, with Dublin, you have this Scandinavian aristocracy, and it's the same in Kiev, but they obviously, like the ones in Dublin, they start marrying into the local population, and what's interesting is they start being called Vladimir or Vladislav and things like that, and it's like, okay, they're clearly picking up Rus or Slavic names, and they are clearly associating themselves more with the local people's they probably don't even speak Old Norse anymore, and they get Christianized as well to the Orthodox faith because of Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire. So, if you like, those Vikings are very different to the Vikings who are moving from Dublin to Iceland, and yet they are pretty much the same story, which is a really wonderful echo of each other. It also is a reminder of how much the trading and exploration of Scandinavia is integral to global history, but early medieval history, setting up their territories in the north of France. They were called the Northmen, and that's where we get Normandy from. So, yeah, William the Conqueror, the French love saying, oh, well, it's an example of the French beating the English. Well, William probably did consider himself French. But again, the country itself wasn't the first and foremost thing. He was Duke of Normandy, and he knew that he actually had Viking origins. The founder was Rollo. So there we go. So they're popping up all over the place. The Normans themselves, obviously the Vikings conquered England, the Normans conquered England, but the Normans went on and conquered Sicily and were involved in the Crusades. The Vikings went as far as North America, they went as far east as Kiev, they went down and became the bodyguards of Byzantine emperors. That is a huge radius of influence of Viking technology, culture, civilization, manpower, call it what you will. We're going to have to fast forward now. Five, six hundred years to Nagasaki. Now, obviously, the one thing everybody knows about Nagasaki is it's the location of where the second nuclear bomb was dropped in World War Two on August 9th, 1945. There we go. But what most people don't realize is of all the different towns and cities of Japan, it's actually one of the more recent ones. It's still not as recent as something like Hollywood, for example. But yeah, 
Here's the thing. The Portuguese in the very late 1400s and on into the early 1500s, they did lots of exploring of mainly Africa and then on into the Indian Ocean and they start making trade networks and vicious colonialization of certain areas of India and China and they start grabbing things like bits of Indonesia. They keep setting up these trading posts or sort of colonial castles. It's very bloody. There's not a lot of difference between their behavior and the behavior of the Vikings. But by the time they get to Japan, which again, a bit like New Zealand to Hollywood, Japan to Portugal, that's a long way. They've kind of run out of their vicious streak. And so they actually start trading with the Japanese. And we get in the 1540s, they're trying to do work with the existing ports facilities of Japan, just isn't working. So Nagasaki is set up as basically a free trade port with these strange foreigners who bring these very unusual cloths and and various items to Japan. And obviously Japan sends their own stuff back. It is a useful trade both ways. That's in the 1540s. By the 1580s, the Jesuits... These are the Catholic response, if you like, to the Martin Luther and the, the whole rebuking of the Catholicism and the splitting of the church in the West. So the Jesuits, or if you like, the Catholics reinvigorated and they want to go out and convert lots of people. And they do so through lots of these Portuguese locations, be they in Africa or indeed in Japan. And briefly, from 1580 to 1587, Nagasaki is run by the Jesuits. It's a a Jesuit colony, which is about as weird a thing to say as you can get. And actually, Christianity starts seeping into some of the aristocracy of Japan. It's seen as high status. It's seen as marking you out from just the common man on top of everything else that would mark you out from the common man. And it isn't until the very early 1600s. We get In the year 1600, we get the Battle of Sekigahara, which is where Ieyasu Tokugawa takes over everything, and he sets up the Tokugawa shogunate. And basically, there are Tokugawa shoguns from basically 1600 on into the middle of the 1800s. There's 250 years, finally, of peace in Japan. But one of the things the Tokugawas want to do is they want to shut themselves off from the rest of the world. So this 60, 70 years of trade between the Portuguese and the Japanese stop. Nagasaki is now a healthy port. It's got a decent population. They're not going anywhere. But the Jesuits are hunted down. Now, weirdly, in the West, we get inquisitors... expects the Spanish Inquisition. Meaning Catholics hunting down secret Jews, Muslims, or indeed heretics. But in Japan, they have their own inquisitors, which are hunting down secret Christians, which is a really weird thing to to say. There is a very good dramatization based on some real history. A movie, we're going full circle, by Martin Scorsese, which is actually called Silence, and it's set in the 1600s, and it's exactly about that. Ferreira is lost to us. He denounced God in public and surrendered the faith. That's not possible. Father Ferreira risked his life to spread our faith all over Japan. It seems to me that our mission here is more urgent than ever. We must go find Father Ferreira. The key thing about this movie is it's about faith. Can you keep it? Do people still have it? Who's tricking who? It's it's an amazing movie. 
it's a hard watch. It's also very languid. It's very much like some of these classic movies of the 70s. It's not in a rush to tell the story. But if you want to just settle down and not see a superhero film, although, ironically, you've got Kylo Ren, or the actor playing Kylo Ren, and you've got Andrew Garfield, who's one of the Spider-Mans, actually is sort of two of the central characters, and Liam Neeson, who, of course, was also in Star Wars. Ferreira is lost to us. Battle droids. This is an odd play for the Trade Federation. We must go find Father Ferreira. We've got to warn the Naboo and contact Chancellor Valorum. This is in your hearts, then, both of you. Yes. Finding him was the will of the Force. I have no doubt of that. Yeah, that's the thing. All these other elements of Hollywood are still leaking out there. But really, really good film that sort of shows the aftermath of the Tokugawa shogunate trying to get rid of Christianity in Japan. So there we go. Nagasaki is actually not quite as Japanese as you may think. And the last thing I will leave you on on this one, actually, before I do, always going to say this, look, please click subscribe, give us a review. Thank you very much. Tell a friend. I'm at Jim Daduccio on Twitter. And I always sort of tweet out every week, you know, here's what the latest episode is. Please retweet that. Please share the love. Help us grow. We had a big push in the summer of 22, it would be great if we could get back to those numbers again. Please help us if you can. But what I will say is, finishing things off, is tempura. I've never really thought of deep fried food as being particularly Japanese. And it turns out it isn't. It's Portuguese. And actually tempura, which kind of sounds Japanese to my ears, isn't. It's the Japanese version of tempura, which is the Portuguese for like adding spices, adding herbs, seasoning, basically, food. So there we go. There's actually a bit of Portuguese influence in modern-day Japanese food that you probably didn't even realize was there. Thank you very much for listening, and as always, another podcast coming soon. <laughs>